This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. I am your host of today's pod, Bridget Smith, and joining us today is Michelle Allen and Rasakumagali. Michelle is a principal at Allen Coba and has been nationally recognized in the MSP industry since 2003. Uh, she's a frequent speaker and thought leader in the MSP industry. Rasa is the director of MSP compliance for Synergy Settlement Services and provides plaintiffs and plaintiffs' attorneys with Medicare secondary payer compliance support and consultation. Both Michelle and Rasa are on the board of the MSP network and has been, have been heavily involved in MSP. So thank you ladies both for joining us today. Uh, today we are going to discuss the Paid Act and where we are now. So I thought we'd start out with just a brief summary of what the Paid Act is, what it was meant to do and, and kind of start there. So. One of you ladies would be so kind as to introduce that. And this is a piece of legislation that was enacted in December of 2021 in order for primary payers to gain information necessary for them to move forward in uh, determining what plans a Medicare beneficiary may be on uh, in terms of Part C and Part B, which are private insurance, as opposed to the, uh, the federal Part A and Part B Medicare program. And uh, the gist of it is such that um, whenever you're looking to resolve a case, there might be plans out there that have reimbursement rights of conditional payments that have been made. Um, however, the, the beneficiary might not uh, have recollection of what they are. Um, they might have multiple plans. There are enrollments every October and Medicare beneficiaries can change which private plans they're on. They might not uh, recall for which calendar years which plan had coverage, and the, the Paid Act provides primary payers with that information, the, the names of the plans and, and the coverage periods. And it's very helpful to, uh, to try and connect the dots, so to speak, so that all reimbursement uh, rights can be satisfied prior to settlement, so there's no surprises down the road. Okay, great. Okay, so right now, um, with respect to the Paid Act, it, you know, in December it was implemented, and now we here are here in May. Um, how is it working? Um, did you guys have feedback on on how it's working, how the implementation went? It's varied. There are um, something like four thousand Medicare Advantage and Part D plans in the United States, and uh, they're all responding to uh, correspondence differently. Um, many of them have dedicated resources and uh, they've staffed up in their legal departments and their subrogation departments, and they're quite aware um, of what's going on in, in terms of Medicare secondary care recovery efforts. Um, but there are some who, who are not uh, prepared for it and most likely are not familiar with it and uh, are, are not responding to the correspondence or, or providing um, conditional payments, the summaries. Uh, or, or any response at all whatsoever. <laughs> From a plaintiff's aspect, you know, it's disappointing that we can't really access any of that information that is being provided through the Paid Act, other than reaching out to the defense to say, what sort of information do you have about these 
you know, Part C, Part D plans. What we do have, though, is, you know, we have Medicare.gov where the plaintiff is able to set up an account, they can register, then they can see the sorts of plans that they have been enrolled in over the course of the past few years. So that is a resource, but it would be wonderful if at some point this Paid Act information was directly available to plaintiffs and their representatives. That's a really good point, Rotha. Um, you know, that, that's something that, you know, I think would benefit plaintiffs greatly because I think sometimes it's very confusing knowing what plans you were on and tracking all of that. And when somebody asked you those questions, you'd have that available, you know, when an insurer asked you that question. I think, you know, there's a lot of confusion really when you have those supplement plans, you know, when you have the G plans, when you have these other plans, you know, they get very confused in the plaintiff's mind. Right. Um, so what about, so do you, with respect to, Michelle, you made a really good point about sometimes some people may not even know of it. And I would also add too, that some people just don't have the ability right now in their systems to, to really get that information, right? So some people are, are going on the website, the portal to really uh, get the information on the query. So it, it's somewhat of a, a mixed bag a little bit. Um, what about any, uh, surprises or any any things that that came up with the paid act or from the information that you can see as as a potential issue for insurers or plaintiffs plans asking for a different type of authorization form um, and that can delay things that can slow things down Ross I'm not sure if you receive some of those letters um, at any point uh, where we have to go back and ask the, the plaintiff or the claimant to, to sign a different consent form. Um, it would be nice if there was a streamlined, uh, you know, single agreed upon letter <laughs> in order to get what we need. Definitely. You know, we have not seen those letters that much because when we get involved with the plaintiff's attorneys, you know, we counsel them or advise them on a variety of MSP compliance issues. So whenever we're having a discussion about you know, the fact that if Medicare made pre-settlement injury-related care, these payments have to be addressed. You know, we kind of start discussing traditional Medicare Part C plans, Part D plans. And at that point, they usually just hand it over to us. So we have the authorizations and then we reach out to the various plans, subrogation or legal departments, and we just identify and then negotiate the claims for them. So the way that these come to us, they come to us in a different way. But I do know that one of the problems, you know, that I've heard is that the information that you're getting on the Paid Act oftentimes provides sort of inaccurate contact information. So then, you know, you think you have it made, but yet people are reaching out to different divisions and units that really are not helpful. So I think that's something that is going to be ideally improved in the near future. Okay, so with respect to the 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 information from the Paid Act, those are really good points about the accuracy of the information as far as the addresses and then the, um, the different consent forms, which can take some time uh, to, to get those and, and hold up cases. What about the query process itself? How has, I mean, how has the Paid Act um, had an impact on that query process or has it? especially how much you query, how often you should query, when you should stop the query. 
My only experience is that the the benefit uh, of it being returned through the query is getting it as quickly as we do and being able to begin the process much earlier on. Um, in, in terms of, you know, whether you're querying more frequently or, or whatnot, I, I don't have any experience with that. So Michelle, I am curious. So what are you seeing in terms of most of the people that you work with? Like, what are they doing with that information that they're getting from the paid act? You know, are they looking to put the burden on the plaintiff or are they looking to resolve it themselves? And Bridget, you were probably gonna ask this, but I'm just dying to know right now. So I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Um, I, I think that by and large, for the most part, primary payers are interested in pursuing the conditional payments. They're interested in putting that information to immediate use and trying to find out what's out there and, and to deal with it head on. Um, I'd, I'd say almost without exception, that's been the attitude in the position. I, I do think that's the correct attitude. So thank you for, for sharing that. And, and so, so here, you know, something that, that I was thinking of too with, with the query process. So um, sometimes the, the query can become so large because you continue to add cases and, and cases aren't taken off. So there's a chance that you're reporting on things that may have closed, but now with the paid act information, you know, when do you really, close a query and how do you keep track of that historical information? I think that's something that that insurers are kind of broaching at this point. You know, what do we do if, you know, if it goes back three years and we have a long claim and people can change every year or more often in certain circumstances, where do you house that, that information? You know, how many lien holders are there? Um, even if you, get a hit for a traditional lien, you wanna keep it involved in that query process or traditional um, uh, Medicare that they're a, a hit for that on the query. You wanna keep that engaged in the query because there could be other plans there. And so I think it adds that, that additional layer as well. What about condition, the conditional payment process, you guys? Do you see anything on that end uh, becoming more aggressive or more arguments on yeah. that, that end from lien holders about having this notice now? You know, what we see the arguments with the lien holders being sometimes with these Medicare Part C and Part D plans, you know, even though they have the same recovery rights as traditional Medicare Part A and Part B, we see a reluctance in them to give procurement costs reductions. So, you know, those are sort of the arguments that we oftentimes fight with them about. Um, other arguments that we will raise, of course, is that this condition is something that they were treating for before the date of the accident and truly the plan is primary. So, you know, from a plaintiff aspect, we do see, you know, settlement releases, which just are much broader, you know, in nature in terms of trying to protect the defense from ever having any sort of issues. So that's kind of the impact of what the Paid Act did, has had on the plaintiffs. That's great, Rosa. Yeah, oh, that's good feedback. And so, Michelle, I, I was I was saying that. Do you think that plans, in another way, do you think plans will become even more aggressive, or will in Part D and Part uh, C plans become more aggressive and use the fact that um, insurers have 
this information to show that they, they should have acted sooner in this? I mean, it's speculation at this point, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think that there's going to be an evolution in this process. Similarly to the evolution of conditional payments and processing in original Medicare, um, there's been a, a 20 plus year span of processes and procedures improving and changing and evolving. And this is no different. Um, it's still relatively new. Uh, various companies are getting their arms around it, trying to figure out what their processes are gonna be and, and how they're going to respond to this correspondence. And you're starting to see um, some, some similarities in, in the evolution. Like for instance, whenever Part C and Part D plans are responding, they are frequently not filtering through the ICD-10 codes. They're, they're sending you a payment summary forms that include absolutely everything that they've paid. Um, so, you know, will that become more sophisticated over time? Possibly. Um, will they find a way to, to, you know, use a grouper or some sort of a filter to whittle it down to what the ICD-10 code is that's being furnished to them um, by, by companies like, like ours? and or the section 111 reporting that they're receiving or they should already have the the limitations of what the ICD 10 codes are um, but we're not seeing that uh in play just yet um but also are some of these plans going to start staffing up in their subrogation departments and their legal departments and um become more aware of what's going on every time they get a conditional payment inquiry they should look at it like it's a, a lottery ticket of found money um, and, you know, once they start dedicating resources to that and they, they recognize that these are, these are unbudgeted amounts that are, are coming back to them and it could be a windfall, are they going to become more aggressive about it? Very possibly. Um, it, it just makes sense that they would become more aggressive about it with the evolution of the, the implementation. And, and it's still relatively new. I mean, it's, <laughs> we're only five, six months into this, so. Um, yeah, I think we're going to see probably more aggressive efforts coming from them once they get their arms around it. And once they get their arms around it, you've got to wonder, how are they going to be dealing with post-settlement injury-related care? Is this sort of going to open up a greater amount of aggression in terms of scrutinizing cases where they previously made payment prior to settlement in terms of them avoiding future payments? So there are still a lot of uncertainties out there. Those are great points, you guys. Uh, thank you. Okay, so going forward, what are some best practices or key takeaways that you can give our audience about where we're at right now and, and what they can do right now with respect to the PAID Act, the query process and the conditional payment process? I'll go. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just like regular Part A and B conditional payments, investigate early and often. Um, make sure that you're getting some sort of uh, letter out to them, um, putting them on notice and, and making sure that you're uh, taking positive efforts towards satisfying conditional payments. And with the ability to, to get this information through a query, it can be done upfront very quickly. Um, and, and make sure that if there are conditional payments that come back, that they are being disputed. The success rates on disputes are, are terrific. Um, they're including a lot of amounts, so don't that are not related. So you know, don't don't just pay them. Make sure that you're only paying what is necessary, and uh, 
and make sure that you get uh, correspondence back from them indicating that the, the conditional payment has been resolved or sometimes they'll send correspondence that says um, there is no, they have no interest in a particular case and, and we can consider it to be closed. So, so get those letters, get that correspondence, add your file and make sure that uh, all your, your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. And from the plaintiff's aspect, I think that it's important that you try to work together with the defense in terms of how you're gonna address that information that's been made available through the Paid Act. This portion of the case really does not have to be adversarial in nature. You know, everybody's on the same page in terms of let's make sure that nobody tries to collect payments that they're really not entitled to or pursue double damages and so forth. So I would suggest that plaintiffs and defense work together once they have that paid act information from a plaintiff aspect. If you are not going to be reaching out to the defense, make sure that your client accesses Medicare.gov if they don't know what plans they're enrolled in. It's also important when you've had a case lingering in your office for years because of the litigation continuances and so forth that you update that information. If you're still not sure what you're doing, you should always realize that if you get a $0 conditional payment situation from traditional Medicare Part A and Part B, somebody out is out there that is going to be looking to recover. So don't think, yay, this is great. I don't have to do anything. What a wonderful deal. And then you're going to be surprised down the road by this Medicare Advantage plan that's coming after you. So update your files. Look at the medical records to see who's been paying for stuff. Look at the pharmacy histories to see whether there are Medicare Part D plans that are making payment. So be proactive. This is not something that you should just kind of take a very casual approach about. Thank you both uh, for your time today. Uh, it was an excellent discussion and a lot of good, uh, good information. Uh, so we appreciate you setting aside some time and we also appreciate our audience for also setting aside some time to speak with us today and to listen to our MSPN podcast. Our next episode is entitled Helpful Citations for Federal Regulations, and that will be hosted with uh, Bill Delaney and Patrick Saprinsky. So please join us for the next podcast. Everyone have a great day and thank you again. Thank you.